If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, who really wrote rap's first hit? That is the song that let the world know what hip-hop was. Later, we explore the legend of House of the Rising Sun. The mythology is incredible behind this song. Finally, Cher's battle with the United States Navy. U.S. Navy? They didn't see Cher coming. Hip-hop has become one of America's greatest exports. The MCs are legendary, and the crowds massive. But is its legacy obscured by murky origins? The song that helped catapult hip-hop into the mainstream was built off of plagiarism. It's the late 1970s, and the pop scene is bursting with fresh sounds. Disco, funk, and R&B music dominate the airwaves. Then, without warning, a small New York record label releases a single that shocks the world. I will never forget the moment that I first heard Rapper's Delight. Somebody had a boombox, hit play, and this thing came out with these guys saying rhymes over and over and over and not stopping. And I remember really stopping cold and thinking, what? the hell is that? The beats, the vibes, the grooves, and it just clicked with so many people. Rapper's Delight is the first formal introduction of hip-hop music to the mainstream. I was hearing a sound that I had never heard before from a city I had never visited, but still felt like I was a part of something bigger. Without this particular song, who knows where hip-hop would be? But the song's success glosses over a questionable origin story built on deceit. It begins with a former pop star named Sylvia Robinson, who is transitioning from performer to producer. Sylvia Robinson started Sugar Hill Records. She was savvy enough to transition from just being a recording artist to also being a record executive. Her son was starting to hear hip hop being played at parties and parks and tapes that were being passed around. He's the one who came to her and said, we gotta figure out a way to make records out of this stuff. Robinson hears a young MC named Big Bank Hank belting out curious lyrics at a pizza joint. Intrigued, she asks the rapper to come record at her studio, but Hank doesn't exactly have his own material. Big Bang Hank was managing Grandmaster Kaz, one of the original MCs in the Bronx back in the early days. He's got a book of his rhymes. Hank sort of says, hey, I gotta do this audition. And he needed lyrics. And Kaz was like, okay, I'm gonna give you my book of lyrics. Grandmaster Kaz's name in the rhymes that go on the record. He spells out Casanova Fly, and those are the rhymes that end up on Rapper's Delight. Casanova Fly, 
AKA Grandmaster Kaz's signature is obvious, coming right at the top of Hank's verse. Hank all of a sudden became Casanova Flock. Check it out, I'm the C-A-S-N, the O-V-A, and the rest is F-L-Y. Casanova Fly is mentioned in the song. They didn't even bother to tweak that to kind of make it their own. He didn't get recognized for those lyrics. But there's more than just the questions surrounding Casanova Fly. There's also a familiar bass line drawing more attention to the song's originality. There's no questioning that they absolutely stole the music verbatim and just used Good Times by Sheep. Times by Sheik was one of the biggest dance songs ever. And so Sugar Hill just said, okay, we'll put a band together and they'll play that. You have the lyrics over here from this one rapper, and then you have the disco music from Sheik, and you create this whole new song and you sell it completely 100% original. So it was creating something original out of, you know, these two stolen properties. Coming up on Music's Greatest Mysteries, who is really responsible for rapper's delight? And are their intentions less than charitable? Now Rogers hears what's supposed to be his song, and he's like, what, what the hell is this? And later, the storied history behind the animal's hit song, The House of the Rising Sun. There's just something about the song that made The House of the Rising Sun seem like a place that maybe you wanted to go to just to take your chances. Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang is released in September 1979. Immediately, it becomes a groundbreaking hit single and is widely revered as rap's first commercial success. But the producer's choice to use unoriginal material threatens to derail the rise of hip-hop as a new music genre. Who wrote Rapper's Delight? A lot of people. Grandmaster Kaz is one of them. You got Nia Rogers with Chic. It was kind of like the Wild Wild West. It was, this is what I'm gonna do with it. And it blows up, well, this is mine. I'm taking ownership of it. While Grandmaster Kaz initially gives the group his blessing, chic composers Niall Rogers and bassist Bernard Edwards file a lawsuit against Sugar Hill Records. I can see why Niall and Bernie would be suing those guys for that. That went to court and was settled so that Sheik does get their cut of the writing side. Having Sheik be a part of that story is an important part of what Rapper's Delight was and what early hip-hop was. Where one legend was able to find success, another still waits in the wings. Grandmaster Kaz was very pissed about what happened with his song because his manager, Big Bank Hank, stole the song from him. Instead of looking out for him, he called him an opportunist. And understandably, he's very upset about it. Grandmaster Kaz came out to say, yo, fam, that's me. And that is the song that let the world know about what hip hop was. Sometime in the 2000s, he's able to get partial credit for the song, but I feel like that's still not known that Grandmaster Kaz is the one who wrote that song. 
Lost in the rapper's delight controversy is the bigger question. If sampling is at the heart of hip hop, is the genre born out of ill intentions? The origin of sampling wasn't nefarious. It was more of a necessity to get hip hop off the ground because at the start of hip hop, no one saw it as a business or a viable music form. It was just something fun that folks were doing at parties. This is a thing everybody was making up in the moment. Nobody was thinking about what would a rap record sound like. It really set the standard of you're biting somebody's rhymes. You're biting somebody's verses. It really showed from the jump within this industry that I guess it's possible to get away with it. History is told by the winners. Unfortunately, that's the way that it is. If you haven't heard House of the Rising Sun, then you're not a rock fan and turn off the TV because this is not the show for you. <laughs> there is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. They could stop the song right there and I'm hooked. And it's been the ruin of many a poor boy. In God, I know I'm It's about the dark side of gambling, women, and alcohol. I'm like, go on, tell me more about this house in New Orleans. In 1964, popular music is defined by two sounds, the Beatles and Motown. But in September of that year, a timeless ballad emerges, knocking the traditional acts from their top spots on the charts. The House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. To have that as your first number one single is so strange because it is not a poppy song, but I think it's the power of the story is that it hooks people. And there's just something insistent about the song and there's something about Eric Burden's voice, that growl, that power that he had that made the House of the Rising Sun seem like a place that maybe you wanted to go to just to take your chances. It is just a perfect combination of elements that made it a great song, but it's a very mysterious song. But the song exists long before the animals take it to number one, bringing its legend to the top of the charts. Where does it come from? What is it really about? The questions start to fly. There have been rumors that somebody who served in the Civil War passed the song along. It's roots going back centuries. It's one of those songs that was being passed around before they figured out how to record music. It has gone through all kinds of transformations. Every great artist covered this song at some point in their career. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Nina Simone, Dylan. There is a house in 
became this transformative piece of art over decades. Even going prime time in 2011. While the song itself remains shrouded in mystery, so is its story. It begs the question, what is the House of the Rising Sun? When you listen to it, you see it in your head. You see the place that they're describing it. So I think that the House of the Rising Sun was a real place. Is the House of the Rising Sun real? It depends on who you ask. Coming up, a trip to New Orleans in search of the answer. The mythology is incredible behind this song. What was it? And later, Cher finds herself in hot water with the Navy. The World War II veterans viewed this as something that was desecrating a historical landmark. classic folk song, House of the Rising Sun, dating back to the 1800s, has been covered numerous times by legendary artists, including Nina Simone, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, and Bob Dylan. But when Eric Burton and the Animals cover the song, it rockets to the top of the charts, creating a new fan base in search of its true identity. The answer seems buried in the soul of the Big Easy, and the theories swirl. One is that it was a whorehouse in New Orleans around the turn of the 19th century, a place where you could go and get a drink and get a woman. And it burned down in 1822. And this is the earliest mention of anything of the rising sun. But. The term rising sun was also slang for just bar. A lot of places were popping up called the rising sun as a place where you could just go get a drink. There's a lot of evidence it's a prison because of the line in the song, I'm going back to New Orleans to wear that ball and chain. The mythology is incredible behind this song. What was it? Was it a brothel? Was it a restaurant? Supposedly, there was a hotel in the French Quarter called the Rising Sun. I have been told from many, many firsthand accounts that the song is about a brothel that was owned by a woman named Marianne Le Soleil Levant, which literally means the Rising Sun. There are all these facts that we can look into, but nobody really knows for sure where the roots of this song come from. The fact that people are still debating it, you know, 150 years after it was written, it's amazing. We don't know. Does it matter? No, I think it adds to the mystery. Since 1776, the U.S. Navy has confronted numerous global enemies across the world. But in 1989, they face an unlikely foe on the home front, a music legend. 
U.S. Navy, they didn't see Cher coming. In the 1980s, the music icon has become known more for her movie roles than her music. Snap out of it! Even winning an Oscar in 1988. But at the end of the decade, Cher reinvents herself as the goddess of pop. She was very hot as an actress, but now it was time for her to also remind people that she started off as this badass rock chick. Her plan? To use MTV and a new music video for the single, If I Could Turn Back Time. They decide that they're gonna film the video on the USS Missouri, which is the ship where the Japanese signed their surrender treaty for World War II. The Navy thought maybe a share video can give the Navy publicity. So when the director approached them about this video, they just saw it as an opportunity to maybe get some new recruits. They had approved this polite storyline about a guy on the ship writing love letters and Cher hovering behind him singing. It was all going to be very tasteful. And then, on the day that the video was shot, Cher goes ahead and just has a sexy good time all over this historically important boat. Coming up, will the Navy torpedo Cher's comeback video? She's basically wearing duct tape and a see-through negligee and a leather jacket, and that is it. And the Navy, understandably, perhaps, lost their minds. It's 1989, and Cher is making a comeback. For her new music video, If I Could Turn Back Time, she's enlisted the U.S. Navy and a historic landmark, the USS Missouri, as the filming location. Cher's wardrobe, which has been scandalous in the past, has been pre-approved by Navy Brass. The storyboard had her coming out onto the naval ship with a jumpsuit on. But Cher shocks everyone when she comes on board in an outrageous outfit. She's basically wearing duct tape and a see-through negligee and a leather jacket, and that is it. And the Navy, understandably, perhaps, lost their minds. The Navy liaison tries to shut the production down, hoping to convince Cher to change. This was not part of the plan. She refused to change, and the director refused to change, and all of the crewmen were already there, so they forged ahead with the video. Cher was not about to change out of that outfit because she needed everyone to know that she was still Cher. The U.S. Navy finally relents, and Cher wins the battle. She is running around half-naked on this world-famous boat, writhing up with sailors. You can see the flower tattoo on Cher's butt. At one point, she straddles a cannon. She was like, screw you guys. I'm getting on this ship, and I'm going to rock faces, and she did. The video becomes a massive hit and reestablishes Cher as a pop icon. But the controversy creates headlines and headaches for the U.S. Navy. Rest assured, there will be no sequel. 
There's quite a long tradition of entertainment, both formal and informal in the military, but they didn't like how it came out. And then they said never again to famous pop stars parading around on the deck of a battleship. The World War II veterans actually were very upset by this because they had viewed this as something that was desecrating a historical landmark. People were writing anxious editorials about Cher's destruction of the youth of America or whatever. So MTV wouldn't air the video unless it was 9 p.m. or later. Cher reestablished herself through that video and she reminded everybody of exactly who Cher is and continues to be. This is what you come for when you go to see Cher. And honestly, the Navy could maybe get over itself because if Cher had not been dressed that way, would we still be talking about this video? No! So maybe Cher knew what she was doing. A history lesson on the birth of rap. A journey to find a rising sun. And a diva's battle with the Navy. All part of music's rich heritage. All part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.